Some of these hymns sustain their value, their truth, the worship of our holy Heavenly Father. So it's great to be able to worship together with you. I'd like to begin by telling a very simple little story. Uh, One of the things I love to do early in the morning, now it's getting too dark, but I get lights, and so they're as bright as a car headlight, is to ride my bicycle. So I ride out over Newport and out San Diego Canyon Road in the back, and I've been doing it for a long time. Actually, I have people sort of honk at me, like they sort of like know me. Um, I guess guess it's a friendly honk, I'm not sure. But in any case, uh, I was riding out there just a couple of weeks ago, rode over Newport Avenue there near Cannon, near Peters Canyon area, if you know that area. So I'm stopping at the stoplight because as a good bicyclist, I, of course, obey all the traffic laws most of the time. And so as I sat there at the traffic light, this guy in a big pickup truck pulls up next to me and rolls down his window. He says, hey, how you doing over there? And I looked over to him and said, oh, I'm doing great, thanks. He says, may say, hey, I see you ride in front of my house every day. I've been watching you ride in front of my house for years. So he finally had a chance to greet me. And I said to him, the only thing that occurred to me at the time was the light changed to green. Well, I am a creature of habit. And so therefore, you're going to see me a lot doing the same thing over and over and over again. Now, why do I tell you that? Because it seems like, no, Dave, why are you taking time to do that? Because... When he said that, I've seen you doing that for years, and my response immediately off the top of my head is, I am a creature of habit, is that I am a creature of habit. And therefore, change is hard. And I don't know about you, but I asked the first service, how many of you have no problem with change? And there was two people that raised their hands. I said, man, okay, Sealy has no trouble with change. Um, God bless you. At least he had one here today and doesn't have a problem with change. Well, I struggle with change, especially as it reflects on me. If it's your change, what do I care, right? But uh, no, if, of course I care. But when I'm in the centerpiece of that, if you will, there's change. There's change going on at Calvary Church. The change is a succession plan that we unpacked. Norm Alexander did a great job a few weeks ago on Labor Day to express the desire for a replacement of the senior pastor who happens to be me, although I'm the assistant to the senior pastor, is Jesus Christ. But we are here to have this kind of succession plan that I initiated a couple of years ago, and the last year the elders have worked on it. So we're going through a time of change, and I need to remind myself that the only thing that doesn't change is dead. Dead things don't change unless you count decay as good change. And so it's a good thing when we go through seasons of change to allow God to shape us and design us. So this morning, I'd like to light the way, if you will, for where we are going as a church. But the application is not just for Calvary Church and who we are, but it's for every parent, it's for every boss, it's for every employee, it's for every school teacher, it's for every student, it's for every friend, that we are helping those around us become the people that God wants them to be. So this morning I'm going to use Moses to Joshua as that profile that is familiar to a lot of us, might be new to many of us as well, but it's good for us to learn how God has designed change in terms of leadership because he never wants to have a leadership void or vacuum. And Moses to Joshua is a perfect example of that. So Moses is the teacher. If you put it into the parlance of an academy or school, this is the school of leadership that we're talking about. The teacher, the professor is going to be Moses. 
few facts about Moses that he was an imperfect individual. You read about in Exodus chapter 2. If you go there, you will realize that Moses is a murderer. Can you imagine looking at someone's resume, and somewhere on that resume they say, I am a felon, I kill people when I get angry with them. Not exactly the kind of person you're going to want to hire. So Moses is imperfect, and I'm thankful that throughout my 22 years here at Calvary Church, I've had a lot of people help me to understand that I'm imperfect. (laughs) I still have some of your letters, uh, because I need to remind myself that I am imperfect. And so God uses imperfect people. Secondly, Moses is reluctant. In that passage, we're not going to take time to go to those passages. We'll go to some others. But there Moses says, I don't want the job. I don't want the job. Get my brother Aaron. He's so much better than me. You don't want me, God. You don't want me. And God says, Moses, you're the guy. Because I, the Lord God of Israel, I will make things happen. And then finally, as a result of these two things, we learn from Moses in Numbers 12 that he's the most humble guy on the face of the earth. He's the most dependent upon God. And this is what I love about Moses, because Moses acknowledges what we all need to acknowledge, that we are imperfect people, that we are sometimes reluctant to go the direction that God calls us to go in because there's something fearful about change and things that we don't feel like we're qualified to do. And God loves it when we have this attitude here. So he says, Moses, these two qualities make you the best person for the job, because I don't need people that think they're somebody special. I need people who think they're someone worthless in a God-honoring way, that I can't do it unless God is in it. And so we will see that as we go forward here. Paul writes it this way, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness. Notice these qualities that don't look good on a resume. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in fear. I had much trembling. Oh, Paul, you need counseling. Get your life together. No, he says, that's how I came to you. This is who I am. I'm honest. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. There were better preachers out there than Paul. But Paul says, I'm not the greatest preacher. I'll admit it. But he says, but in demonstration, this is what I want to demonstrate. This is what I want you to see, folks, Paul writes but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That's what Paul's saying. I don't want you guys in the Corinthian church there to think, wow, as long as we have Paul, we're doing okay. But what if Paul resigns? What if Paul dies? What are we going to do? Well, Paul says, man, it's... This isn't about me, Paul says. This is about what God is going to do. This is about the power of God. Whether it's Paul, whether it's Moses, whether it's Joshua, it doesn't matter. Because as long as it's about the power of God and the power of God to work through imperfect people who are trembling and weak and fear, as long as you've got the power of God to carry you along, you're in good shape. And so that's what I love, that when we have these indications that we ourselves are inadequate, God says, all the better. Because, man, I don't need people who are full of themselves. I need people who are full of the Spirit of God. And who is Moses going to teach? The student is Joshua. You can read the text for yourself, but this one phrase stood out to me. 
that Joshua was a lifelong learner because he was a, an attendant, it says there. He was an attendant from his youth. As a little kid, Joshua started hanging out with Moses. Was it a mentoring plan, an intentional succession plan? Because Moses knew someday, just a little kid, he's going to take over my role. He had no idea about it. They just spent time together. They just invested in themselves. And so Joshua grows up watching the professor, if you will, Moses. And this is their education. First of all, they had an undergraduate education. The very first time we see Joshua in action is Exodus chapter 17. Here's lesson number one. This is the take-home quiz. Lesson number one, trust in the power of God when you face conflict. God does some of his best work when he allows conflict in our lives. One of the things I love about Psalm 119, Psalm 119 in a couple of verses says this. In verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before I was afflicted, I would go astray, but affliction helps me to keep your word. In verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. There's something special that happens in conflict and affliction. And here is the amazing thing about this affliction. The first half of chapter 17 is all about the Israelites complaining to Moses. It's internal conflict. The second half of the chapter is all about external conflict. Let's look at, first of all, the internal conflict. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to read along with me, or there's a Bible in the chair rack in front of you because I'm reading from Exodus 17. And there's some key points that are on the outline that is available for you in the bulletin. There are prayer points that releases the power of God when in conflict. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, it says this, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink, as they're in the wilderness, having been released from the country of Egypt. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Just over-the-top exaggeration. But this is what happens. When God's people get on the bad side of circumstances and conflict and there's affliction, Sometimes we want to run to the leader and blame him for all the problems, and that's what they were doing here. The very people that Moses probably thought were on his side because he's part of the Red Sea, he's released them from the slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt. They're in the wilderness, but now they have no water, so what do they do? They gripe and they complain. So Joshua is there with Moses during this internal conflict, and here are some things that I want to observe that are on your outline about why we need to pray. First of all, I noticed prayer is where I admit I don't have what it takes to do the job. Notice in verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do to this people? What shall I do? When God permits conflict, struggles, and affliction in our lives, 
it forces me, and I hope it forces you, to say, God, I don't have all the answers. I don't have what it takes. I am inadequate. As Paul says, I'm here in fear and trembling and weakness. I can't do this. Prayer number two, my prayer is more passionate when I suffer. So Moses cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. He didn't fight against the people. He just cried out to God. He says, God, I don't have what it takes, so I'm crying out to you. In conf- conflicted times, in affliction, prayer replaces a complaining heart with a trusting heart. Verse 5, then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people. Take you, with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So he goes. Instead of complaining back, God, in this conflict, I'm learning what it means to trust you, not to complain to you. Also, I noticed that prayer in conflict opens me to answers I never would have thought of on my own. Notice what it goes on to say. Behold, I will stand before you, God says, there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. If I'm in the wilderness and I've got a stick and I don't have water, the last thing that's going to come to my mind is to go to that rock and get water out of it. What God does to Moses is, Moses, I want you to go in the midst of the conflict amongst your own people. I want you to see the struggle that is going on in their hearts as they come to you and you admit that you don't have what it takes and you turn to me and you cry out to me because, Moses, I want to do something special through you for them and I want Joshua to watch this. Because when you get to a place in your life where you just don't have all the answers and you are like Paul, weak and trembling and fearful, the best place for you to go is to turn to God and let God's power do things that you never would have thought of if you just calculate on your own. He didn't gather a bunch of engineers. He didn't do a study to find out where there are natural flowing waters. He didn't do some sort of a map overview. He didn't send up a drone to research waterways in the wilderness. He simply says, God, what am I going to do? And God says, the very last thing you would ever think of, I'm going to make water come out of a rock. And when God does those things in the midst of conflict and struggles and affliction and hardships, it's a wonderful thing. And all the while, Moses is teaching Joshua, what do you do when conflict's overwhelming? And Joshua's watching us. Is he a student sitting there taking notes? No. But he says, man, this guy's serious. God's amazing. Water from a rock. Who would have thought of that? Just God. So when conflict comes, and it comes internally, it comes from the very people you thought we could trust the most, your family, your friends, those that were, you thought you could trust in, betrayal, Boy, you know, I think over the wonderful years that I've had here at Calvary for 22 years, I've had, I've had these people come to me. And it's an amazing phenomenon to sit there and read what they write. And sometimes like these people, you're trying to kill us. 
I've had people tell me I'm trying to destroy the church. I know it's out of a heart that wants the best for the church. But what a rich time to say, God, man, I'm overwhelmed. So I'm going to ask you, help me get this thing taken care of. God loves to do that. Then there's conflict that only comes internal but external. There's a guy named Amalek that comes along. So verse 8, following along, conflict within the camp, conflict from without the camp. As the enemy comes from the outside, then Amalek came and fought against the Israel of the, at Rephidim. So they get the water. God provides for them. And a guy by the name of Amalek, and he's the head of the Amalekites, who are constantly torturing the people of Israel. Some people believe that Amalek, his name means those who wring the neck. And it came out of historical times where the people would come along, catch a bird, and wring the neck and break the, the head off the body. Delightful, right? Well, how would you like to have a name that reminds people of wringing the neck? Well, that's Amalek. This guy's coming in. He's got probably professional warriors who who all they do is wander around the wilderness taking water. They hear there's water at Rephidim, so they want some of that water, so they come and attack Moses and Joshua. And so Moses says to Joshua, here's what he gives to Joshua, his first assignment. Verse 9 is the first time we see Joshua in action. Then Moses said to Joshua, choose men for for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God on my my hand, and Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek and Moses and Aaron and Hur, and he went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hands up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur, they supported his hands on one side and one on the other side, and thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Then Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And God said to Moses, write down this victory. Record this. So they did. That's why we have it. When I see that, I think about poor old Joshua. First day in school. First assignment, Joshua, there's a professional warrior out there. He's got a whole team of people that are stalked and trying to kill us. So would you choose a bunch of guys and go fight them? (laughs) Joshua's never been to the academy for Army or Navy or Air Force or Marines. He didn't know the first thing about battling. Joshua grew up in Egypt, watched his parents make mud bricks for Pharaoh. If you want me to make some mud bricks, I'll do that for you, Moses, but I don't know the first thing about battling somebody like this. But he does it. The simplicity of his faith of Joshua. He watched water come from the rock, so maybe he's thinking, well, God can do something special here. And so God sends Joshua out there to battle who has no capacity to fight this enemy, who has no skill, no learning, no knowledge that we know of anywhere. But God sends him out, and as he goes out there to do battle, he starts fighting, and he looks up in the top of the mountain, and there's his professor with Aaron and her on either side holding up his hands, and then he sits on the rock because he's tired. And Joshua sees those hands up, and he knows the prayer is going up. Joshua only defeated Amalek 
because of God's power and Moses' prayer. When you and I face conflict, affliction, when you and I are thrust into a leadership role, when God places us into a, a season of change, when suddenly I'm in a circumstance that I don't know what to do, it's not dependent upon the skill and the learning and the knowledge, although God uses those things. Ultimately, what God says, I want you to trust in me. I want it to be about my power, God says. I don't want you to think, boy, aren't you lucky that I'm on your side, God says. I don't want you to think that you're so special that I would never defeat Amalek unless Joshua was the guy. God says, I don't want that. I want people who don't know what they're doing, who realize they're worthless, who realize they're empty in their own strength, who say, God, unless you are in this, and people are holding up their hands in prayer for me, I'll never accomplish anything. The work of God in a church will never amount to anything if it's dependent upon some highly skilled guy who stands up here, who thinks he's somebody special, who has this great talent. God doesn't need super talented people. Now he wants us to learn. He wants us to grow. He wants us to improve. I'm not discounting that. But when we're full of ourselves, we're thinking how special we are, and we're not saying, God, but for you, this will fail. Unless we're there, we're not really fulfilling the leadership school of training and trusting God. God wants us to trust in him. Now, I'd like for us to pray. I'm going to invite Matt Doan to come on up here. Matt's going to pray for us. You know, one of the things I've been blessed over the years that I've been here at Calvary Church is that God has raised up a group of 40-something pastors, and, and beyond that as well. I'm not discounting the other ages, because Matt's a 40-something guy. Aren't you a 40-something guy? Yes, I admit it. I'm a, 60, I'm a 60-something guy, and so it's been a blessing over the 22 years here that God has positioned a Matt Doan, a Matt Davis, and Eric Wakeling. Uh, a Doug Brown who's not 40, he's like 30. Is much younger. Much younger, much younger. But that you have been hearing from them preach. And I'm telling you, when I think about Moses to Joshua, isn't that our calling? That, that what we have, we release and get out of the way and let God embrace and God raise up. And that's what's been happening here. It's wonderful. So anyways... I say jo- uh, Josh, Joshua, <laughs> thank you for being here. We of course, appreciate Matt of course. Yeah. So I'd love you to make a few comments about Exodus 17, so thank you for this opportunity. I haven't yes, spoken since know, before sabbatical. I, know. I, th- I, th- I so, thought, oh my goodness, he yeah, hasn't preached in a long time. This is time, very so dangerous yeah, of you, know, so know, thank you. Um, well, we're going to control but, that microphone. Okay, thanks. Good. <laughs> Exodus 17, verse 12, look at it again. You just saw it a minute ago. It says, but Moses' hands were heavy, and there he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and her supported his hands. And I just speaking for myself and also speaking for those that are on our paid staff here at Calvary, it has been an honor to serve Jesus by serving under the leadership and the vision of David Mitchell over the last 22 years. And so, yeah, I'm so thankful for that. And so in a sense, I identify as an Aaron or a her, helping lift up the vision and the leadership of Calvary for all that God wants us to be. 
and I speak for myself and also speak for our staff. Uh, we are excited and will gladly hold up Eric Wakeling's hands, in a sense, as he transitions, Lord willing, into the position of senior pastor uh, in this next uh, season of change. And so I see myself again as an Aaron Urher lifting up the vision and the leadership of what God is doing here at Calvary Church. And we have packets in the back. If you haven't picked one up yet, you can grab one on your way out. And it talks about some of the vision that God's given Eric for what he sees in the future. And one of those places that I've really landed on is this vision of challenging our church uh, to spread the gospel in a new and passionate way. You see, I don't have to convince you that as a culture, we are in a place that's never been weirder or uncool to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, we also live in a culture where people have never been more hungry or more thirsty for what only Jesus can satisfy. Amen? Amen. So that's where we land. It's a really exciting place to be as a church and as followers of Jesus Christ. And so what I'd love us to do, as Dave was alluding to, I I will pray. (laughs) Um, Can we stand up right where you're at? If you're able to stand up. And as Moses prayed over the battlefield with these guys on either side of him, I'd like to, in a sense, pray for us. And so if you can just even extend your hands, if you're able to receive this from the Lord. And let's pray as a church family. Heavenly Father, we come to you with our hands raised as a sign of our need and our dependence on you. You are the one who delivered the nation of Israel from Amalek. And you are the one who delivers those of us who believe in your name, Jesus, from the chains of sin. We consider it an honor, Lord, to serve one another within this family here at Calvary Church. And Father, out of that, we thank you for the faithful and humble leadership of David Mitchell. Thank you for providing for him what he's needed in every season of his leadership. And God, as we look forward to this transitional time, we trust that you'll continue to provide what we need as a church, what you're calling us to be. And I pray that in that you would encourage and strengthen Eric through this transition. Use those of us on staff and as a church family to hold up his arms, so to speak, to be gifts of encouragement and steadfastness. And Father, we, the people of Calvary, we plead with you. Give us, the people of Calvary, humility. Give us, the people of Calvary Church, wisdom. And give us, the people of Calvary Church, your good, pleasing, and perfect will. And we pray this in the name, the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. And we said? Amen. 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 All right. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Look forward to you preaching up here again. (laughs) You can finish your sermon next time you come up here. All right. Undergrad school for Joshua. Trust in the power of God in the face of conflict. Then after undergrad, you go to graduate school. Graduate school is where something very special happens. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. Let me read Exodus chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to read it with me. This is an amazing phenomenon as Moses takes Joshua to the literal mountaintop and the work of God 
begins to take place as they gather together. So in Exodus chapter 24, we read these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron and Nabab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. They're looking into heaven. This is an amazing phenomenon. And it says there, yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God. They saw God. And they ate and they drank. They had a picnic with God. It's incredible. Now the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and remain there. And I'll give you the stone tablets, which the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So here, watch this, verse 13. So Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you, and whoever has a legal matter, let him reproach you. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And the seventh day he called to Moses in the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like the consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is an amazing moment. Amazing, obviously, for a lot of reasons for Moses, but in particular in the context of what we're talking about for Joshua. Undergrad schools, there's conflicts, there's hassles, there's struggles. It's hard, but I trust in the power of God. Grad school, God says, now let's change the scenery. No longer are we talking about the struggles on earth. We're talking about the glory of God in heaven. I'm going to bring you up so you encounter who God is, who He is, spend time with Him, to live in the presence of God. They saw the God of Israel. To live by the Word of God as God gave them the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and all the other regulations that God would have. To live for the glory of God, that the glory of God rests on the mountain of God. That a leader that we want to raise up is an individual, a man or a woman that understands what it means just to spend time alone with God. Remember, he said, six days, Moses just sat there, just sat there waiting in the presence of God. And then another 40 days, he chisels out all the commands. Spending time alone with God to know about him, more importantly, to know him personally. If you want to raise up leadership that carries the work of God forward, We raise up leaders that knows what it means just to simply live in his presence. That wherever I go, whatever I say, I'm the presence of God. I'm in his presence. And that his word is that instruction, that there is vital truth, there is absolute truth, and I'm guided by that truth to live my life. And that all of it is so that the glory of God is being able to see. All the people down at the bottom of the mountain are looking up and they see the glory of God up there that what I do, it resonates the glory of God. Sadly, as they were down, they built the golden calf and sinned. And that's where Joshua learned about the holiness of God in contrast to the sinfulness of people. But what a graduate education. 
that when we look for leaders at church, when we look for leaders in your homes, when parents want to have their children grow up and carry on the work of God, it's because we're modeling, we're teaching, we're mentoring what it means to live in the presence of God, to live by the Word of God, to bring glory to the name of God. I ask that we would be a church like that, not just for the one that takes my place, but for every situation you and I live in. Let's live in the graduate school of Moses and Joshua. It's interesting. I was reading this last week about St. Francis of Assisi. He's the one who wrote the longer version of this, but the Lord grant that I might not so much seek to be loved but to love. When Frank Frank St. Francis of Assisi lived late 1100, 1200 era, there was a guy that came alongside and was jealous of him. Jealous of his prestige and his position and his servant. And people would come and listen to St. Francis of Assisi. He was a big deal back then. Still is in many ways. So St. Francis of Assisi responded to that friend when he asked why St. Francis of Assisi. This is what St. Francis of Assisi wrote. You want to know why I'm being used by God, he said in essence. It's because the eyes of the Most High have willed it so. He continually watches the good and the wicked. And as his most holy eyes have not found among sinners any smaller man. Remember Moses, the imperfect, reluctant leader. Nor in any more insufficient and sinful. Therefore he has chosen me to accomplish marvelous work which God hath undertaken. He chose me because he could find none more worthless. And he wished to confound the nobility and the grandeur and the strength and the beauty and the learning of this world. His resume that qualifies him is that I don't have what it takes. Here we go again. Moses, I don't have what it takes. God says, God, you're perfect for the role. Because I don't like those who think they have everything that it takes. It reminds me of these words of what Paul wrote about ministry. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That's me. He chose me, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world that the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so they might nullify the things that are. Why? So that no man may boast before God. We're not discounting education, training, mentoring, discipling, growing, learning. But sometimes those who live in a world where all of that is only thing they look to, they fall very short of this. And then they begin to think, boy, that no man may boast before God is a foreign concept because they want the boasting to be how great I am and aren't you lucky to have me and boy am I gifted and if only we had that superstar then people would come and be attracted and it's all about the giftedness of an individual it's not about the power of God and the glory of God the word of God the presence of God St. Francis of Assisi got it Paul got it I want us to get it that what we do means nothing 
unless God does it. God saves people. We don't. God grows people. We don't. We feed them. We nurture them. We plant the seeds. But God bears the fruit, 1 Corinthians 3. So we need leadership that understands that it's the work of God that he works through us as sort of worthless, weak people so the power of God might be evident in all that we do and say. And then there's the commencement speech. Therefore, we need to grow as a godly leader. Let me read the commencement speech of Moses. As he hands off the mantle to Joshua, In Numbers chapter 27, verse 15, Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. God has just told Moses, you're not going to the promised land. You failed, you you goofed up here, and so sorry, but I'll let you see it, but you can't go there. So Moses says, okay. Uh, It's not about me. It's about what you want to do, God. So God... I want someone to take my role. I want to have a successor to my role. Who would you have us choose to take the seed of Moses to continue to lead the people into the promised land? So he says, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. He says, I don't know who it is, God, but you tell me who it should be. So this is a humility of Moses. He's not presuming upon anybody or anything. Who will go out and come in before them? And who will lead them out and bring them in? So the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua. You know old Joshua. He's been with you since he was a little kid. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom the Spirit who has the Spirit, and lay your hand on him and have him stand before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation and commission him in their sight. And you shall put some of your authority in him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. As his command, they shall go out, and at his first command, they shall come in. And he, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all the congregation. And Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And he took Joshua, and he set him before Eliezer the priest, and before all the congregation. Then he laid his hands on him and commissioned him, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. This is the commencement. This is the the subtle moving away from Moses to Joshua. And in this little sermon of this speech, I notice these qualities that God looks for. I want someone like Joshua who is a compassionate shepherd to love people. I want a pastor. I want someone who's going to care for them like shepherd cares for his sheep. Secondly, you notice in verse 18, I want him to be a spirit-filled leader. That's Joshua, in whom the spirit is living. Choose people who have the Spirit of God living within them. I also want someone who's accountable to other spiritual leaders. As the people around Moses and Eleazar, he's not doing it alone. I'm so thankful that we have an elder board that keeps me accountable. We don't do this job alone. We have staff. I learn constantly from Doan and Davis and Eric and all the others who are much younger than me who tell me things that I should know, and, and sometimes I feel like I'm really out of touch. But it's good. We need people that come along and keep us accountable. Hey, what about this? What about that? It's great. Very collaborative. Because I've said from the get-go that I came here 22 years ago, I'm not smart enough to do this job on my own. 
We need a team. And so does Joshua. We want someone who is supported by the congregation, that the congregation will come and obey him. And let me say this. You who are members of Calvary Church will vote on November the 12th. The elders have done their due diligence. They've done their homework. For a year they've been working on this. They put together a packet of information that's available that uh, Matt talked about that's in the lobby. We don't view that, and I've heard this word used, as propaganda. To me, that has a rather pejorative or negative feel to it. That's simply a result of a lot of homework and study and research and interviews. So that's been a years-long due diligence. And now for you, the members of Calvary Church, we're asking for your due diligence. Research it. Look into it. Spend time with Eric. Come to the Q&A in a week and a half. Invite him out for a cup of coffee. Text him. Email him. Wake him up at 2 o'clock in the morning and ask him a tough question. (laughs) Well, that might be pushing it. But you get the idea. Because we want you to be part of We can't do this without you. It's your decision. All we're offering, here is the one, as the bylaws say, we recommend. But it's your decision, ultimately, that God would bless His will to be done. So we invite you into the process. Spend time. Look into it yourself. We encourage that. I love, I got a wonderful email this morning that this, it was challenging to read it. It was challenging. But I'm thankful to hear from you. We want to hear from you. We want to engage over this process as it relates to Calvary Church in particular right now. And also be directed by the Word of God. Eleazar the priest, the Urim and the Thummim, they, they come alongside and they, they reveal the revelation from God. We need leaders that are led by the Word of God, and then we need leaders that are entrusted with authority, that see this authority that is given to them, this mantle of responsibility that Moses commissions to Joshua, that see this as a sacred trust, not to be violated, that lives in the power of God, lives in the holiness of God, to carry out the godly work of God. That's what we want. Let me wrap up with this. One of the things that I do outside of Calvary Church to serve on the board of trustees at Biola University. I was just there last few days at Biola. We're wrestling through a lot of things there. Long meetings, long days. Uh, most of the time it's pretty good. I've been on the board for like 17, 18, 19 years. I forget, I lose track. But 11 years ago, Clyde Cook was the president of Biola. And Clyde came to us as the board and says, Men, and women, I have decided to resign. He says, I want to resign in the 99th year of the history of Biola University so the next president can celebrate at the 100th anniversary of Biola University. And I sat there thinking, man, what a humble guy. He could have stayed to the 100th and, yeah, way, way to go and celebrate him. And, and then the new guy kind of steps in the shadow of all that. He says, no, I want to, I want to step out so the next person could come in and celebrate what God is doing. And so that next year, we spent a whole year. I was, part, I was one of five people on a search team, and we came up with Barry Corey. Barry has now been a president there for 10 years, just celebrated his 10th anniversary, doing a fantastic job. I'm so thankful. And here's the thing. I wasn't learning 
as much as I was absorbing during that period of time. Because 11 years ago, I wasn't thinking about succession here. But what, I, what, what stood in my mind was watching Clyde Cook, a sainted man, a humble man, a pastoral man, who led a university through many decades of service. Wonderful. And at full health, full strength, he said, I'm stepping down because I think it's time for another person. So there are seasons of ministry. And his season was up, and it was time for a new leader to come in and build. And Barry's come in and has done a fantastic job. Bile is stronger now than it ever has been in all of its history. It's amazing. New buildings going up, new ministries, new schools being started. It's incredible, incredible. So Barry's done a fantastic job. So I saw that, and I thought, man, isn't that the way it should be done? In a church, in a home, in a business, we hand off. Say, now, keep it going. The crazy thing is this. During that year, after Clyde had resigned, he went into his living room, sat down in his big comfy chair, and died. Just died. We had a big service for him over here at Ephraim Fullerton. Incredible. And then Barry came, and that was when Barry came, the first thing he had to do was to preside over Barry <laughs> Clyde's funeral and then celebrate 100 years. Incredible. I share that, and my wife, Joy, heard about that. She said, I'm going to kill you if you die after you leave here at Calvary Church. <laughs> she didn't say it quite like that, but I think between the lines I could hear it. So that's why I'm saying to you this, and I'm saying it to God. I hope He's still listening. God, I'm not resigning. I'm not retiring. You don't need to take me yet. But I am realigning, realigning, because I love you, I love Calvary Church, and I look forward to serving in new, exciting ways what God has for me as God through you, chooses the next senior pastor. So it'll be a blessing. So I invite you to be part of that and look forward to what God still has to do and accomplish. Not only are we doing these things through here in our worship service, but we're actually a school of leadership for children. So I'm going to invite Leah and Tina to come on up here and all of our Calvary Christian school teachers. We want to close by celebrating what God is doing in their lives. So come on up. We're excited for them. We have a fantastic school that meets on our campus from preschool all the way up through eighth grade, and we are helping to raise up generations like a Joshua. And all these teachers you'll see standing up here, they're like Moses, if you will. No pressure. Uh, but they're helping to raise up generations that follow, and that's why we have the schools that are here. And to my right is the lovely Leah, and to my alt Alt right, I don't want to say that. But to my other right is uh, is uh, Tina over here. We're so thankful for both of them. Leah has Tina Holland, and uh, doing a fantastic job and a great start to our school year. And so, Leah, give us a word. Sure thing. 
Thank you. I first want to start off and just say thank you. Um, many of you know our school has suffered a tragic loss two weeks ago, and we have really seen God's faithfulness through your prayers and your support and providing resources for us to come alongside of the family, uh, come alongside of our school family, our teachers and students. So I want to say thank you for your faithfulness. God has also showed us tremendous faithfulness by these wonderful, talented, Yes. Uh, knowledgeable, compassionate teachers that stand before you now. Amen. We have um, just seen their love come out and just um, sh- be showcased um, through the Calderon and Elliott families. And there are three things that we are focusing on this year at Calvary Christian School, one of which is that we are looking to encounter God in all areas, through our academics, through our athletics and our fine arts, and even through our new robotics program, which has been super exciting. We're also, secondly, speaking life into our students in a very specific and intentional way. If you're here on campus on Tuesdays, you'll um, see kiddos running around in bright and bold colored t-shirts with words on the front, words such as brave, chosen, free, loved, treasured. And our teachers are intentionally speaking life over these students so that they know their identity in Christ that is not in the not of the world and not of social media but who they are as God has created them to be so that's really powerful and then lastly we are creating kingdom classrooms where students are affirmed where we are again strategically developing world changers which is again really powerful in our Calvary Christian school If you are sitting there and you are thinking, how can I get involved in the school? Out in the lobby, there are some cards called Next Step Cards. So I'd love for you to pray about a way that you can get involved, whether it's joining our Thursday morning prayer team, whether it's receiving our weekly emails, maybe even coming and volunteering or continuing to support us financially through your generous giving and um, providing resources and special services. We have... um, put in our new turf field, and we are seeing our students play football and soccer. Even the teachers have been out there. The church staff has been out there. And the greatest joy is on Wiffle Ball Wednesday. When those kiddos slide into home plate, they are not scratching up their knees anymore. You're a Wiffle Ball player, too. Don't you play Wiffle? Yes, absolutely. All-time pitcher. Down and dirty. Good. ATP. Um, And also, through your generous giving, we have seen over 36 families be able to join our Calvary Christian School team um, through giving over $100,000 in financial aid. So we want to recognize your giving and just specifically thank you because we truly are better together. Absolutely. Way to go. Preach it. All right. Thank you, Leah. And then Tina. We're thankful for Tina. Doing a great job. Tell us about preschool. Thank you. Well, we're 100% full this year, so we're very excited about that. And because of our wonderful teachers, it's not hard to do. We have parents calling us when they're pregnant wanting to go on our waiting list, and we start at two and a half. Wow. So that's exciting. Um, Our mission statement is Jesus first, education second, all in excellence. And our Bible verse is 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this is what we love to carry out and live through every day. And these teachers pour their hearts into these students and to their families. What we ask of you truly is to pray for them. It's tough every single day. And um, it's not always bubbly. It normally is, but not always. So we do cover your prayers to pray for us throughout this year. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me r- wrap up with this. Two things. Number one, I just want to thank our 
teachers, our administrators, they are serving as pastors. Boy, it was a glowing example, and I sung Leah's praise already. I'll sing it one more time. Uh, but Leah and Nicole and, and Dre, uh, when little Maya was lost in the river somewhere at Kern River, they made a beeline up there to be with Melissa, the mom, and the family. It was just incredible. And they provided a pastoral work to their hearts and lives. Our teachers, they instruct, they know their job, they know their, their, their language and their skills, they've got all that but they bring a pastoral ministry to the kids' lives. That's what we want. We're not just instructing for the brain, but we're training for the heart, be followers of Jesus Christ. So we're thankful for them. Let me also say, and and Tina is every bit as compassionate. She really shepherds her own teachers as well, does a fantastic job. I love Tina's heart and working here. How long have you been here? This is my 15th year. 15 years. Wow. So we're so thankful for that. So, So we're thankful to have faithfulness like that over all these years. Let me also recognize that as much as we have our teachers here, we're thankful for each of them. We understand there's educators out there in a lot of arenas. And we want to acknowledge and pray over you as well. So would you stand and let us acknowledge you, pray with you. If you're in the educational program, public school, private school, other Christian schools, homeschool, or administration, whatever that may be, would you stand up for just a moment? You remain standing for just a moment. We are so thankful for you. You have some of the hardest jobs to do, having a room full of kids and work with them. Oh, my goodness, I'm just exhausted thinking about it. But I'm thankful that you are there and investing in these next generations that need to come out. We need you, and we're thankful for you. So let me pray God's blessing upon all of our teachers and instructors that are here with us this day. And we're going to receive our offering after that as well. Father God, we thank you for these leaders. Thank you for the role that they play in touching the lives of the generations that are coming up. God, I pray your blessing of power, that your holiness would reign through their lives, that they would walk with you and as you walk with them, that you give them the grace and the mercy and the love and the kindness as they reach out to Many children, many who come from broken homes and have hardships that they go home to. God, thank you for the investment of their time and their energy, their heart and their mind to bring up this next generation. Father, thank you for these who serve on our campus. Thank you for these who serve on campuses elsewhere. Lord, that your blessing would be rich in their lives to be empowered to continue the work. Thank you for this offering as we receive it. Thank you for your gracious kindness in supplying what we need. And we look to you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.